any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Would you, um, would you pray with me? Father, we, um, we acknowledge that, that this is your church, both this local expression of your church and the church universal, the church worldwide. It is your church and that you are building it, that you are sustaining it, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is your promise to us. And Lord, we, we, just, we, we thank you for the opportunity to be a part of what you are doing, to be a part of the, the, the worldwide impact that the church has had and is having and, and will have as all the elect are gathered, brought into the kingdom. Lord, we thank you that we have that we have a part to play, that we have a role to play in that, that we have something that we can do as a part of what you are doing. So Lord, we, we gather here this morning as your people, and we pray that you would um, that you be honored and glorified through what we say and do, and sing and say. Everything that is done in this place would be to your honor and to your glory. And we pray this in, uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, kind of walking our way through mission and vision. Um, just by way of reminder, this is the mission statement that we have been working from. Our mission is this. Our Lord Jesus Christ commissions us to glorify the Father by making disciples as we go into the world, gather into the church, and teach the church to obey his commands by the Spirit of God. Now, for a while now, we've been talking about this idea of, of going. The, uh, the vision statement that goes with going is this. We glorify God in going to our neighbors and the nations, praying for the lost, sharing the gospel, planting churches here and among all the people God calls us to. And we've been spending some time breaking that down over these past weeks. Today we transition to the gathering part. Uh, again, the three-part mission, going, gathering, and teaching. Today we begin talking about what it means to be a church that gathers this is the part of the vision that speaks to that. We glorify God in gathering as God's elect, sharing together in worship of our Lord Jesus and showing the love of God shed in our hearts toward one another. Let, let me just say that again so I make sure you get together in worship of our Lord Jesus and showing the love of God shed in our hearts toward one another. I, I hope you get the, the, the two um, orientations here. There's a, a vertical orientation. We gather together to, to worship and to praise our Lord Jesus. And we also gather together to share his love with one another. There's a vertical element and there's a, there's a horizontal element. Um, I wanted to start this morning with a confession. <clears throat> I am a, uh, an unrepentant ecclesiophile. Yeah. I'm an ecclesiophile. Now, you might be, you don't have to call your mental health professionals. I'm, it's okay to be an ecclesiophile. I, I, actually, I, was, I started thinking about this word this week, um, and I wasn't sure it was really a word. So I, so I Googled it. 
which is, you know, that's what you do. <laughs> if you're not sure of something, you just, you Google it. Turns out it is really a word, ecclesiophile. Uh, I actually found an, uh, a blog post from a, from a pastor in Florida. His name's Tom Askell. Um, he wrote this article. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm just going to read the first paragraph to give you a perspective on what this means. He says, I am an unreconstructed ecclesiophile. I'm not sure what the unreconstructed part is. So I, I am an ecclesiophile. That's what he says. I, I love phileo, the church, ecclesia. So ecclesia, phileo, ecclesiophile. I, I, I love the idea of the church because of the wisdom and power of God that it displays. I love the practical expression of the church in local churches. I love one local church in particular and regular, regularly reflect on the kindness of God and allowing me to serve and be served by that body, he says, for over 19 years um, where he has been serving. Um, I love the church. I love the church. I'm an, I'm an ecclesiophile. I hope you can say the same thing of yourself. And the reason I bring this up is because one of my favorite passages of Scripture is this one that we just read, especially starting in verse 42. And it's because of the, the portrait it paints of the church. This, this beautiful picture of, of people from all walks of life, people from every economic circumstance and, and every tribe. If you read the entire chapter, chapter 2, you'll see the people came from, were from, had come from all over the world to Jerusalem. And i, I got to believe that when this 3,000 people were gathered, they came from many different walks of life. And the thing that united them, the thing that brought them together as they gathered was Jesus. And so they gathered together as the church in this, this beautiful portrait that we see of the church gathered. I, I, I love it. I, I think there are, there are aspects of it that are um, mainly descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. They're not necessarily telling us what we ought to do or should do or how we should do it. But on the other hand, I think there are some things here that we can certainly learn from. It's... Um, it's instructive, if nothing else, um, perhaps even aspirational. I mean, as you read this, this description, it almost sounds too good to be true. This depiction of the church and what it, and what it was, and perhaps for us, uh, a glimpse of what, it, of what it might be. I feel like I want to read it again. Taking of bread and the prayer. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to any as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What a glorious, marvelous, wonderful picture of what the gathered church could be, perhaps ought to be, and perhaps too often fall short of. So we're going to take a little bit of time. We're going to work our way through these verses, these characteristics of what the church uh, might be. This, uh, this beautiful depiction of Christ's bride. I start with this. Um, I don't know if my outline got to the 
screen. There are really just two points with a few subpoints. The first point I'm calling uh, a prototypical liturgy. And when I wrote the outline, I put a question mark at the end of that. So it might be a prototypical liturgy? Perhaps. I mean, some scholars see in verse 42 what you might call uh, a primitive or prototypical liturgy. Um, I, I was reminded, I, I, I wrote a paper back in my seminary days um, about worship in the early church. It was called, uh, I dug it up from the archives, Let Us Not Give Up Meeting Together, Corporate Worship in the Early Church. And I quoted a guy, this is the paper here, um, named, named David Peterson. And he made this statement, if I can find it. Um, that some commentators see in this verse um, what you might call um, a primitive liturgy. Got to find it. Should have turned to the page ahead of time. Bear with me. Yes, David, Pe David Peterson writes that some commentators regard the four elements specified in this verse as a primitive liturgical sequence, <laughs> implying that their meetings regularly involved instruction, fellowship, then the Lord's Supper, and prayers. So that's the viewpoint of some. And I think even if it's not specifically a, uh, a liturgy, there are certainly things here that we can learn from. These elements that were part of this from the, from the outset, part of the church's um, gatherings. Uh, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Um, but one reason that I, I, I tend to agree with the idea that this was something specific, that this was something definite, that this was something that, that was not just a mention of some elements at, in, uh, at random, but that there was some significance to it, is that in both the Greek and if you're reading the ESV in the English translation here, each one of these things is, each one of these elements is preceded by a definite article. The definite article being the word the. I don't know if you notice that. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. I think there's something significant there. I think what Luke is telling us when he writes this is that these are specific things. These are definite things. These are part and parcel of their gatherings that uh, you could make the case that these were their non-negotiables. That every time they gathered, these are the things that they were concentrating on. These are the things that they were making their priorities. The NASB um, uh, translates the very beginning of this verse, they devoted themselves, this sense that there was a priority here, that these elements were things that they were making part and parcel of their lives. We see that as the passage progresses, that this just wasn't just a, a once-a-week thing. It was more of a day-to-day -day thing as they devoted themselves to these things. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to, to teaching. It begs the question, what, what was that? What were the elements? What, what, what was it that made up the apostles' teaching? Um, as often is true, we're left with a little bit of ambiguity there. On the other hand, I think we can, we can point at some, some things in particular, especially in the context, and heard a Christian sermon. 
from an apostle, the apostle Peter. I think there's a case to be made that part and parcel of what they were experiencing when they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching was teaching like we just see just prior in what Peter had to say, and there are some elements to that. Peter relies heavily on the Old Testament in his sermon. He relies heavily on eyewitness testimony. He relies heavily on, um, uh, on, 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 the, on what Jesus has done, what Jesus has accomplished, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. His sermon is all about that. He uses the Old Testament to point to these things. And then he, and then he points them to Jesus. I think that's, that's, a good way to, that's a good place to start. If we're going to talk about what the apostolic teaching involved, that's a good place to start. Uh, it, 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 when you think about how the Apostle Paul boiled down his message, this is um, from First Corinthians 15. He wrote this. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. To put it succinctly, to put it in a word, the apostles' teaching central was, was centered on the gospel. The centerpiece of the apostles' teaching was the gospel. It was all about Jesus. Now, we have a record of the apostles' teaching. It starts in Matthew, goes all the way to the end of the Bible in the Revelation. If we want to know what apostolic teaching looks like, we just have to read our New Testament. But we don't need to stop there. We, sh we shouldn't stop there. As I mentioned, when, when Peter preached on that first Pentecost day, he went back to the Old Testament for a lot of the things he had to say. Um, I brought this with me. This is a visual aid. Um, Our brother Chris often refers to this book. In fact, he recommends that you own one. If you don't own one, you should go immediately to Amazon.com and buy one. This is the commentary on the Old Testament use of the Old Testament by Beale and Carson. I want you to look at this book. I want you to look at this weighty tome. What this book tells us is that the New Testament has its roots in the Old Testament. That when the writers of the New Testament, the apostles, wrote what they wrote, when they taught what they taught, it was rooted in the Old Testament. That you can't fully understand the New Testament without understanding what, was said, what, what happened throughout redemptive history. This book, and I don't know, maybe, they, maybe it's exhaustive. I doubt that it is. But every quotation, every reference, every allusion, every oblique sort of uh, nod to Old Testament scripture that, is, that we find in the New Testament, these gentlemen have attempted to put into this very thick book. It tells us we have to look at all of scripture. When we think about the apostles' teaching, we're not just talking about what was recorded of their teaching or what they wrote as their teaching in the New Testament. It's scripture in its entirety with the conviction that scripture in its entirety points to Jesus. From cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, the entire redemptive history, this, this scarlet thread that is woven throughout what we see in God's Word is all about Jesus. I think that's what we have shorthand for here when it says that they devoted themselves 
to the apostles' teaching, and they devoted themselves to the gospel, and they devoted themselves to the teaching, the, 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 the ethical teaching that we see both in the New and Old Testaments. When Jesus left his disciples, he said, I want you to teach your disciples, make disciples and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. I think again, shorthand for all of scripture, all of scripture. Preaching Christ, teaching Christ, teaching all of the revealed word of God and centering on the gospel, centering on the truth that Jesus came to save. So they devoted themselves to teaching. It says they also devoted themselves to the fellowship. Not just fellowship, but the fellowship. This word that's um, translated fellowship here is perhaps one of the better known. And number two is probably this one. The word is koinonia. If you've been around church for any period of time, you've heard this word, this word koinonia, which is used here as fellowship. And I think it, it, this word in itself, it, it kind of pushes up against our concept of what fellowship is. Well, at least it does for me. You know, I grew up in the church. I've been in the church my entire life, and most of the churches that I attended um, had a room called the Fellowship Hall. Anybody else? It's just, just me. Yeah, they had a room called the Fellowship Hall. You know, we usually had a sanctuary or a worship center, and then we had another room somewhere else in the building called the Fellowship Hall, as if there were some, you know, there, there, were, um, there was a, a difference here. <laughs> there's, a place where we go to, there's a place where we go to worship, and there's a place where we go to fellowship. And fellowship, primarily, at least in my experience, um, revolved around um, eating, mostly, right? That's where you, that's where you had your, your potluck dinners. Yeah, uh-huh. You, 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 some of you had the same experience growing up, yeah. We went to the fellowship hall to have a potluck dinner. That was kind of what we did. And I, I think sometimes we get the idea in our head that that's what, that's what fellowship is. And, in a, and to an extent it is. I mean, we see that kind of thing right here in our text, that they're sharing meals together. And I don't think there's anything wrong with considering sharing a meal as part of our fellowship. I, I'm, all, I'm in favor of eating. I think we should do it as often as possible. Um, it's a good thing. But it is so much more than that. Fellowship means so much more than that. There's, a, there's an idea here of, um, of, of partnership. There's an idea of, of participation together. There's an aspect of this fellowship that involves sharing that we see played out in, 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 in the rest of the passage. Most telling to me is this. When, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 16, he writes this. The cup of blessing, he's talking about communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? He's talking about the meaning of the supper. And when he says this, he uses this word, translated fellowship in our passage. It literally says, well, if I can substitute, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia, is it not a fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a, a koinonia, a fellowship in the body of Christ? I think we can see that there's something significant, something deeper, something far beyond just having a potluck dinner together. 
far beyond just you know spending time in, in conversation and getting to know one another, although, again, all important, building relationships, a good thing. But there's something deeper going on here. It's a, it's a sense of our shared participation in what Christ has done. That we are partakers of Christ and what he has accomplished for us. When it says that they devoted themselves to the, to the fellowship, that's what they were devoting themselves to. Not just eating together, although they did that. Not just spending significant time together, although they, they did that. But as they did these things, it was with this, this deeper meaning that they were participating in something far greater than themselves. Participating in Christ, identifying with Christ, partnering with, sharing in. All of those things are aspects to this idea of the fellowship. And it says they also devoted themselves, in addition to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, they, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Most scholars, although there's some differing opinions, most scholars that believe in this context, this breaking of bread with the definitive, with the definite article refers to the Lord's Supper. That when they got together, when they gathered, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were, uh, they were devoted to fellowshipping with one another on this deeper level, and they participated in the Lord's Supper. Uh, to me, I, I, to, uh, it, it, that makes it all the more meaningful that we here at Remedy do this every time we gather on Sundays. It's not a common practice. You know, I, I didn't grow up having communion every Sunday. In my adult life, I don't recall ever really being in a church before Remedy where it was made the priority that it's made. I think it's entirely appropriate. I think making the Lord's Supper, making the breaking of bread part and parcel of what we do week by week, it's entirely appropriate. I think it, it, it follows this pattern. Whether it was a liturgy or not, the, the, these early Christians devoted themselves to the supper, to, to communion. And I think it's appropriate that we do the same. And it says they devoted themselves to the prayers. This one also is a little bit, it's hard to know exactly what it is that, that Luke is referring to here. There was a rich tradition, both in the temple and the synagogue, of, of what you might call set prayers, prayers that came from Scripture. He may be referring to that, in a sense, maybe uh, prayers that were, were prescribed, prayers that were Scripture prayers. I think that might be part of what he's referring to here. I think it's probably also prefer, he's also probably referring to, to spontaneous prayers, to prayers that were both vertical prayers lifted up to praise God and prayers to pray for the gathered body, something similar to what we do when we gather for prayer together, um, something that we... Uh, I'm also encouraged. I, don't, I think we've told you, and you may know, that we're working our way toward praying, gathering to pray together more frequently. I think as we do that, we're, we're following, following more into this pattern that is given to us here, that there's, that there's value when we come together, not just in someone up here standing on the stage praying for the people, but us praying for one another, that as we gather, prayer should be ourselves too. And then one more thing, I, you kind of have to jump out of, the, out of the context a little bit to add this one other element, but I, I want to put it in here just um, 
because I think this is part of what they did as well. Um, at the very beginning of verse 47, it says, praising God. Praising God. It's hard for me to imagine the gathered people of God coming together and not spending some time praising him. So even though it's not listed here, uh, of these top four that are in verse 42, I have to believe that as they gathered together and they devoted themselves to teaching and to fellowship and to breaking bread, to, to communion and to praying together, I just got to believe there was some praise that broke out. <laughs> you know, as they were gathered together, there was just some praise that broke out. And again, there was some, there's some historical foundation for this. Praying together and praising together was part of temple worship. And we have a whole book of the Bible, 150 songs that were part of temple worship. There's evidence, maybe a little, a little less clear, that, that that was the same thing, those same things happened. But there was there's worship, although the synagogues seemed to be more centered on the word. But there was, there's some evidence there that they also were spent some time in, in praising. This word that's translated praise here um, shows up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the, uh, the Septuagint, in a couple of places, in First and Second Chronicles. Shows up in particular in, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah verse 20, verse 13 says this, Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord. There's this parallelism. There's this idea that singing was a part of what they did. And again, it's hard for me to imagine the people of God getting together and gathering and not spending some time singing. You know, part of me, that part of that, I guess, is my, my, my personal bent. I love, I love music. I love to sing myself. So it's hard to imagine a meeting where we get together and don't spend some time doing that. Um, so maybe there's a personal bias here that's, that's, uh, that's playing into it. But I see that as maybe the, maybe the fifth element of what they did. They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to, to fellowshipping with one another, breaking bread, the, the, the communion time, praying, and praising. So this, this, this one verse, I think, gives us a sort of a comprehensive picture of what their worship, what their gatherings might have looked like. You know, if you had showed up at a service at the temple, or you showed up in somebody's house at, at, a, at a house church. These are the kinds of things you most likely would have seen going on. These different elements, these different activities, if you will. So that's our prototypical liturgy, perhaps. If nothing else, instructive. Uh, gives us some guidelines, gives us some, some ideas about how we might conduct ourselves, how might, we might spend our time as we gather together. And then there's what I think is um, what I call a, a practical lifestyle that flowed out of these things. I think that's what the rest of the passage shows us, that it wasn't just in their, in their corporate gatherings, what you might call more of an official gathering. It played out in, in, in the day-to-day -day life, lifestyle of these believers. Uh, starts in verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. I don't know if that specifically talks about what happened in their, in their corporate gatherings or if that was just an overall general statement. I, I feel like that it, it, it's more general and, and a little less specific in terms of its context. The first thing that, that, that jumps out at me is this idea of, of awe. 
this idea of, of reverence. I don't, I don't want to overstate it, but it seems to me that perhaps we've lost a little bit of that. That, that when we come together, there is maybe not as much awe in our, in our minds, in our hearts. When we, when we approach the throne of God, and we, when, we, when we approach the throne of grace, and when we gather together as his people, I, 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 there, maybe it's a little more flippant than it ought to be. Don't, don't get me wrong, I love a good joke as much as the next guy. But I feel that maybe that's something that we have lost in our corporate gatherings. That there's either, either intentionally or unintentionally, rather than a gathering of God's people, in awe of Him, in reverence of who He is. You see, there's, there's something significant about what we are doing right now. There's something weighty about what we are doing right now. We are the gathered church in this room. And I think we would do well to, to approach it with maybe just a little bit more reverence. An understanding that as we gather, we gather in the name and in the presence of God Almighty. That He promised by His Spirit to be here. And if we take him at his promise, we know that he, that he is here. I think that should, that should color what we do. It should color our approach to, to speaking and, and, and to singing and to, and, to, and to our interactions. Not that we don't enjoy our time together. Not that there isn't a place for lightness. And I'm not saying that we have to be heavy and somber the entire time that we're here, but I think there is, I think there, there is a, a sense that we've lost some of that. That when we come together, we're not perhaps as, as reverent as we, as we might be. I, I was reminded that the, the, the Hebrew word for glory, kabod, I'm probably saying it wrong, has a sense of weightiness to it. When the, when the, when the, when the, when the, when the Hebrews talked about the, the glory of God, they were talking about something that was weighty, something that was significant. I think we need to, we need to make that a part of what we do. We, we say that we gather primarily for God's glory, that everything we do flows out of and, and, and points toward glorifying God. If that's true, then and, and we have the glory of God as, as the center of what it is that we are trying to do here. I think having that weight, I think that's something that we should uh, that we should perhaps recapture. I was also reminded that Paul talks about the eternal weight of glory. That the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. See, this is not only for this present time, it's our eternal destiny. We're going we're to worship God forever under this, what Paul calls, an eternal weight of glory. So there is a weightiness to what it is that we, that we do when we, when we gather. He also talks about these, these wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. Again, I don't think that was necessarily an indication of something that was happening on the regular in their gatherings. 
but it was something that was factored into their, uh, to what they did when they were together. Um, there's a sense in which this was a, a continuation of Christ's ministry. Think about our study of the, uh, of the Gospel of John. That the, One of the things that John points out over and over again were these signs that Jesus did. And these signs were, in, were intended as, a, as an, authentic, an authentication of Jesus and who he was. I think the same thing is true here. I think both a continuation of Jesus' ministry and also a confirmation uh, that the things that they were saying, that, these, that the apostles' teaching had authority. These signs and wonders that were being done through the apostles were both of those, continuation and a confirmation. There are also a fulfillment of the promise that Jesus made. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So all of those things are a part of what we see here when it says that the apostles were doing wonders and signs. Uh, it, it, it kind of begs the question, well, what does that mean for us? We don't have any apostles here. And so when we gather, I don't know that we should expect to see wonders and signs. Perhaps, you know, we're not going to, the Holy Spirit can do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. But on the regular, I don't think our expectation should be to see wonders and signs. So what, what, what do we take away from that? I think the takeaway for that is that what we do here is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Everything we do, both teaching and fellowship, uh, the, the, the breaking of bread together, the, 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 the prayers that we share, the, the praise that we offer up, all of that should be. And nothing that we do in our own strength has any value. Everything that we do that is empowered by the Holy Spirit has, has eternal value. So I think that's the takeaway for me from this. We do have the sign and the wonder that, that the Holy Spirit is working. The Holy Spirit is empowering our, our gatherings. And then verses uh, 44 and 45 say this. All who believed were together and had things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Um, some have seen in this sort of a primitive, maybe even a, a Christian um, socialism. Um, I, I think that's carrying this maybe just a little bit too far. I mean, it does say that uh, when, they, when they broke bread, they broke bread in, in their homes. So there's idea that, that, that people still retained ownership of the things that belonged to them. And we see later uh, the story of Ananias and Sapphira when they kind of got crossways in trying to keep some of the proceeds from the, the, from the property that was theirs and give just a portion. Um, that's another story. So the idea wasn't necessarily that they were pooling all of their resources. I think the idea is more of an open-handedness. Um, a, a generosity, not a socialistic society, but an idea that people were looking around, seeing for places that they could meet needs, and then using the resources that they had been given. They've been blessed perhaps a little more than somebody else, and they use some of the resources they've been given to, 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 to meet those needs. It's, it's koinony in practice, really, when you think about it. Sharing together being willing to be open-handed, perhaps the sense that our possessions really aren't ours, that everything that we have really belongs to God and has been given to us to steward, and, and that, uh, that we can have an open-handedness open with it, that we can be generous with what God has given us. I think that's what we're seeing here. I think that's, uh, that's uh, an outflowing 
from their times gathered together, this um, koinonia in practice, if you will. And then we see um, just what I think is an extraordinary level of commitment. An extraordinary level of commitment. It says this in verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. The things that jump out to me are the things right at the very beginning. It says, and day to day. Day by day. Some translate just every day or, or daily. There was, a, there was a commitment to the, to the gathered church that I think maybe exceeds what we have experienced. What I, well, I'm just saying, what, what, it exceeds what I've experienced personally in my life. You know, I, I think as the American church, we have been content to kind of gather on Sunday and then the rest of the week is mine to do with as I, as I please. Um, you know, I grew up Sunday night, Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you know. And, and, and I guess we felt like we were really doing something extra because, <laughs> you know, we were giving up not only most of the day on Sunday, but we were also getting together on another day during the week. And then you have something like this where it says, and day by day they were attending the temple together. Day by day they were breaking bread together in their homes. It just says to me that maybe we could expand our horizons a little bit. You know, I don't know what that looks like for us. I don't know if it was different culturally back then. I can't make a case for that necessarily. But I can make a case that they made their gatherings a priority. That, that they devoted themselves to them. In fact, this jumped out at me. The, this, where, when ESV says day by day attending, this word attending... If I can say, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to criticize the ESV translators. They're all much smarter than me. But the word that is translated attending here is exactly the same word. Precisely the same word, not just a kind of a variation of the word. It's precisely the same word that's translated in verse 42. They devoted themselves. Same word. So they devoted themselves to these things in verse 42, and down in verse 46, they just attended. I, I feel like there's an undersell there. So not only were they devoting themselves to those four or five elements, they were devoting themselves to their gatherings day by day, both large gatherings in the temple and small gatherings in their homes. I think maybe the Christian Standard Bible does maybe does it maybe gives it a little more um, weight. Says this. This is the way it translates the beginning of verse forty-six. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together. Every day, they devoted themselves to meeting together. Honestly, don't know what to. I honestly don't know what to do with with that. In our culture. It's counter culture. There's no doubt about that. If I were to stand here today and, and say to you all, based on this scripture, that you should be finding a way day by day, daily, to devote yourselves to some sort of gathering, I don't know. Would you all walk out? Would you all think I'm crazy? I don't know. All I can tell you is what this scripture says. And that our takeaway could be that maybe we could grow in that area. 
maybe the degree to which we devote ourselves to gathering together could, you know, increase to something more than it is today. I, I, I don't know what that, and it probably means something different to each one of us in some ways. And it's also something that we as a, as, a, as a body should perhaps consider. What are some other ways? You know, we have our Sunday morning gatherings. And we have our weekly gatherings out in the community, our, our community groups, which I think most of you are a part of. Praise God for that. Um, and I know a lot of you guys, a lot of you spend time with each other in other contexts. I think the call here is to think about that more, to be maybe a little bit more creative with our time, to be a little bit more open to the idea that we should be spending time together. I mean, if we're going to be devoted to gathering together, I think that that has to be maybe a little more than we do now. And again, it might, that might be different for you than it is for me. I just think it's probably more. Probably, maybe, maybe more than we're doing now. And then finally, just to close, um, there, is, there was an impact. All of this time spent together had an impact. It says that they had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, if you, if you know the rest of the story, you know that, that having favor with the people was not always the rule. And as time progressed, it became less and less true. I mean, by the time you get to chapter 8, all the believers except for the apostles were forced to leave Jerusalem because of persecution. So, again, there's a, there's a sense of idealism here, I think. And I think the sense is that what we do here should flow out of this place into, into our community in a way that is, um, that's attractive, in a way that's, that's winsome, in a way that observers, people on the outside, when they look at us, should see something and say, wow, something must be going on there, over there at that Remedy Church. Um, Jesus put it this way, John 13, 30, by all this, all the, the, the evidence that we are His is the love we have for one another. And it occurred to me that maybe that's a shorthand for everything that we've seen in this passage this morning. When we, when we think about both the vertical aspect and the horizontal aspect, what is it that Jesus said was the greatest commandment? Love God. Love people. Love God. Love people. And if, if you boil all of this down to its essence, I think that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing people that were devoted to loving God and devoted to loving each other. Devoted to loving and praising and magnifying and honoring and glorifying God Almighty and loving each other as, a, as an outflow from the love that God has for us and the love that we have for Him. Kind of think of it, think of it as, a, as a triangle flowing all around and around. Up to God, down to us, across to one another, back up to God. I think that's what we're being called to here. And we also get this reminder at the end that the Lord was adding to their number. There's this idea of growth. 
also an idea that God was sovereignly in charge of that growth. It was not necessarily because of what they did, but as an outflow of what they did, and God was doing the work. They were just being faithful. I think that's something else that we be reminded of. So, let me boil this down for us. I think what we have here is, um, at least my takeaway, maybe your takeaway too, is this is, a, this, we have a call to, to grow in our devotion to the gathering. A call to grow, whatever that means for you and for me, to grow in our devotion to grow in our, in, in our priority, in the priority that we give to, to this gathering. Because we need each other. We need each other. You know, and that, that may mean that you change some of your priorities. It may, means when, may mean when you plan out-of-town travel, you plan your out-of-town travel in such a way that it doesn't take you away on a weekend. You know, not, I'm not trying to toot my... Shelly and I have kind of done, tried to do that in our, in our marriage. In our, we, we, there are times when, when, we, when we plan a, a weekend away, but not, we, we try not to do it very often because we, we value being here. And we, and we know that, that we're part of something that's in, important. So we try to devote ourselves to that in that way. It, it may mean, I, I said, I think most of us are involved in a community group. If you're not, it may mean that's what you need to do. Go find yourself a community group. Find one that meets on a night that works for you and become a part of one of those if you're not already. It may mean that as you look around the room, you see somebody that you've, that you've known for years, but you don't really know them. And you... You know, send them an email or shoot them a text or call them on the phone and say, hey, I'd like to get to know you better. Can we go grab a cup of coffee? Can we, or tea? I saw, I saw, I see, I saw that face. Grab a cup of whatever warm beverage you enjoy or cold beverage. <sighs> you know what I mean. Jesus said, Wherever two or three or more of you are gathered in my name, I'm right there in your midst. So when two of us, gather together, whether it's at, you know, Knowledge Perk or, or, or in, our, in, our, in one of our homes or, or wherever. If we're, if, we're, if we're coming together in His name, He's there. That's a significant gathering. I think uh, anytime Christians get together, there should be that, some level of that significance. And maybe it's, this is a, a prompting for you to spend some more time. Again, I don't know what day-to-day -day devotion to gathering looks like. And I think that's something that we probably should, as a body, wrestle through. Maybe as community groups, we should talk about that. You know, what can we do to be together more? I think that's what this passage is calling us to. I think when we talk about what it means to be the gathering church, I think that's what we're called to. Not to gather less. You know, it, it made me think of the, the Lord's Supper thing. Again, most churches do it once a month, you know, as, as if that's enough. I don't know. Maybe it is. But I think doing it more is better. I think the, thing, the same thing could be said of our gathering together. 
however often we do it, however much we do it, trying to do it more is better. So my challenge to you is to think that through a little bit. Pray that through a little bit. How is it that we could be better at being a gathered people? Um, that article that I started with, that blog post, it's up here somewhere, um, went on. I read you the first paragraph. I wanted to read just another couple um, by way of challenge. He said he was an unreconstructed ecclesiophile. Uh, I explained what the ecclesiophile part was. Then he says this, I say I am unreconstructed because in modern evangelicalism, the church has become little more than an add-on, an afterthought, or at best of secondary or tertiary importance. The pressure to view the Christian life from this perspective is great. Jesus and me fits much better with our rugged individualism than does members of one another, as we see in Romans 12.5, Ephesians 4.25, under the headship of Christ, Ephesians 5.23. I suspect that it is the reduction of biblical Christianity to subjective experience that lies behind much of the spiritual malaise that marks American Christianity, which tends to be more American than Christian. Yet, biblical Christianity is inherently communal or congregational. Yes, one must personally and individually repent and trust Christ as Lord, but God intends such repenters and believers to live together in a church. It takes a church to raise a Christian. Would you pray with me? Father, we love your church. It's the body and bride of Christ. Christ loves the church, and, and, and we want to love the church like Christ loved this church. And so I, I pray that we would grow. Grow in our love for this miraculous thing called the church. And that we would grow in our, in our devotion to it. I pray that for myself, that you would reveal to me ways that I can grow in my devotion to the gathered body. And I pray for each one who is here, that they would grow in that way as well. Lord, the writer of the Hebrews encourages us to not neglect the gathering for benefit. And it's because of what Christ has done for us. So Lord, I pray that you would... Um, You'd work in our hearts, work in our in our in our minds, and, and give us some creative ideas of how we might gather together more, how we might benefit from this gathering. Increase our devotion, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.